John chapter 13, let's begin at verse 1, shall we? Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, Lord, I ask you once again that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. Let this be a time in which we are, are inspired and motivated and challenged but most importantly, a time when we are transformed by the entrance of your word through the power of your spirit. I lift up other life-giving churches to you, and I pray blessing upon them. Thank you for the work that they are doing for the kingdom. And I pray that their, their work will be increased and, and expanded, and their influence, their footprint will be enlarged. I lift up to you our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray that you draw them to repentance. And I pray especially, Lord, for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I pray that you will draw them back so that not one of them will be lost. I pray this in the only name that matters, that strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The day had gotten off to a rocky start. Ever since that time, the mother of James and John called Jesus aside and asked him to allow her sons to sit next to him, one on his left and the other on his right, when he assumed the throne of his kingdom, there had been an ongoing debate among the disciples about which one was the most important. The resentment and suspicion festered until that morning when it finally boiled over and the band of followers was reduced to quarreling with one another. No amount of teaching by Jesus seemed to be enough to settle the disagreement. 
So it was a tense group that made their way to the upper room for the observance of the Passover meal. Quickly scanning the layout of the room as they came through the door, there was a scramble as they jockeyed for the premier seats. In their haste to secure the most favorable spot, the pitcher of water sitting on a pedestal in the corner was completely ignored. The last one to enter the room was Jesus. Taking his place, he looked at the faces of his disciples and realized how ineffective his words of instruction had been in quieting the controversy. Jesus was just a few hours away from his betrayal, arrest, trial, conviction, crucifixion, death, and burial. This attitude of competition and mistrust that had manifested itself had the potential to completely destroy everything he had been building into these men for the last three years. Now, if you didn't know what was coming from reading it, you might expect the story to take a completely different turn than what it does. See, according to verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and return to the Father. According to verse 2, Jesus knew that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. According to verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was going back to God. With all that knowledge, you might expect Jesus to come into the room, look around, and raise his hand and say, uh, hey guys, uh, I have an unspoken prayer request this evening. I'm facing something really big tomorrow. I don't want to go into detail about it, but, but could you just minister to me because I have a major crisis I'm dealing with. Maybe you might expect Jesus to do what so many of us would do. Walk in the room and with all the knowledge you have, stand up and say, hey guys, look, before we do this Passover meal, I just need to tell you about Judas and what he's planning. I want to expose that. But instead, Jesus does a most unexpected thing. He stands up and starts taking off his clothes until he's standing in what amounts to just a long nightshirt. He walks over to the pedestal in the corner, takes the folded towel and wraps it around his waist, pours water from the pitcher into a basin, and then starting with John, stoops down and goes around the table from disciple to disciple, washing their dirty, dusty, weathered, cracked, stinking feet. The disciples were stunned. Now, they weren't stunned because their feet were being washed. This was a common courtesy in that culture. In fact, it was considered rude and inconsiderate and a social snub if the host didn't have someone stationed to wash the feet of those who entered his house. Washing feet was normal and courteous. No, the disciples were stunned because of who was doing the washing. This was such a menial job that no Jewish person would ever have this responsibility. The only slaves that were, would stoop to this level were the Gentile slaves, the lowest of the low. And yet, here is Jesus, the one who was their teacher, the one they called Lord because of their belief in him as the promised Messiah. Jesus is dressed as the lowliest slave, kneeling before them, washing their feet, and drying them with the towel around his waist. 
Now, there, there is so many facets to this story that I wish I had time to talk about today. I, I'd like to focus in, for example, on Peter's response. Uh, I'd like to spend some time exploring the fact that Judas, the one who had already set things in motion to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew it, Judas is one of the disciples whose feet are washed by Jesus. I'd really like to spend some time talking about that, but I don't have the time. So in the interest of time, I'm going to limit myself and limit the scope to talking about servanthood. This one action by Jesus did what all the teaching and instruction could not do. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus here is giving a pattern to practice. When Jesus finishes his task of washing the feet of the disciples, he says to them in verses 14 and 15, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you, here it is, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. He continues in the next verse, verse 16, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Now, there are three different words in the New Testament that communicate this idea of servanthood in English. Each one of them talks about the relationship between the servant and what is being served. And I want to walk through those with you for just a moment. One of those words is right here in verse 16. A slave, a servant, is not greater than his master. The word is doulos. It's a very common word in the New Testament. It's used something like 127 times, and it identifies the relationship of the servant to the master, the one who is over him. Doulos comes from the Greek word deo, which means to bind. It literally means one who is bound to a master. A doulos is not free to act on his own. He's in bondage. He's required to do the bidding of his master. Now, in Greek culture, there was absolutely no positive connotation to being a doulos. For the Greek, your sense of personal dignity came from the fact that you were free, no one would think being a doulos was a positive, life-affirming thing. It's, a, it's as ridiculous as talking in our modern day about slavery or human trafficking being a desirable condition. Uh, the idea is, the very idea is repulsive. And yet here is Jesus not only instructing his followers to be doulos, servants, but actually modeling it himself, saying this is the way you do it. He takes the lowest, most menial, most degrading job and not only performs it, but then tells those who would be his followers that you are to follow his example and wash one another's feet. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme of doulos in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a, and the word we have translated is bondservant. It's that word doulos. The reason Jesus says for you to become a doulos is because he knows that you already are. Oh, I know you thought you were free. You did. You, you really did. You thought you had autonomy. 
I want to tell you, from that fateful day in the garden, when the first man and woman ate of the forbidden fruit, thinking it would make them like God, an alien will has taken precedence over the heart of humanity. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And if you didn't like that, Bob Dylan says it like this, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus says, come to me, I'll set you free from your bondage to sin, and in the process, I'll bind you to myself. Now, I can hear the protests now, but wait a minute, Pastor, that still makes me a slave. I'm still giving up my autonomy, and I'm surrendering my will to somebody else. (laughs) Absolutely. Welcome to Christianity. That's what it's talking about in Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the difference between being a slave to sin and a slave to Jesus. You are willfully binding yourself to the one who bound himself to you through his death on Calvary's cross. And instead of now being a slave to sin, you become a servant of righteousness. Now, slavery is a horrible condition if you have a master that is constantly leveraging his power over you in order to dominate or control you. That's where bullying comes from. That's the origin of arrogance and elitism. That's where the idea of might makes right comes from. That's where sexual harassment comes from. It's the idea that because I'm stronger or have more influence, I can control you and dominate you, and I can leverage my power in order to gratify what amounts to my own sinful desires. Now, by contrast, Jesus was and is king. He was and is God. He had perfect knowledge of the future. He had perfect knowledge of the hearts of his followers. He had divine power. He had authority. He had a captive audience of committed followers. He could have leveraged every bit of that for his own advantage. Instead, he taught and modeled that power, watch this, is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. It's for the empowerment of those who are powerless. Jesus didn't lay aside his power and authority to play act the role of a servant. He was exercising his authority and power in service to his disciples. The call of Jesus to you today is to lay aside your personal rights. Bind yourself to Jesus as your master. Stop insisting on your own way and instead follow his way. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and obediently follow him. Doulos talks about the relationship of a servant to the master. There's a second word translated servant in your Bible. It's the word diakonos. It's the word from which we get our word deacon. And it talks about the relationship of the servant to the ministry. This is the word Jesus uses in Matthew 25 when he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember in this parable, he says to the sheep that he was hungry and you gave him something to eat. He was thirsty, you gave him something to drink. Uh, He was naked and you clothed me. He was a stranger and you visited me. He was sick and in prison and you visited me, you invited me in. And and when they ask when all this happened, he responds, well, when you did this to the least of these, you did it unto me. You remember that story? 
Does anybody remember this story? Oh, oh, okay, I got you. All right. Didn't know if I had to go preach that as well. All right. Then Jesus, you remember, turns to the goats, and he goes to that same list again. Well, this time he says, you didn't do any of these to me. And when the goats say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick or naked or in prison and not, and here's the word, minister to you. That's the word diakonos, ministry, servanthood. When you don't feed the hungry or give water to the thirsty or clothe the naked or show hospitality to the stranger or comfort the sick or visit the prisoner. Jesus says, when you don't deacon them, you don't deacon me. And what I want you to see today is that these two concepts go hand in glove. You bind yourself to the master, but you also commit yourself to the ministry. It isn't just about gathering for worship and Bible study and being a good doulos who is bound to his master. It's also about doing the work of the ministry. See, you can be a diakonos and not be a doulos of Jesus. There are a lot of pagans that do some wonderful things. I mean, they volunteer in soup kitchens. They, they march for racial justice, but they haven't bound themselves to Jesus as their master. So what that means is you can serve people without serving God, but you can't serve God without serving people. You can't be a doulos without being a diakonos. And I want to tell you, sometimes serving people is, is it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't always match up with what we think. Because serving, sometimes serving people means you're going to miss church. Because you're helping somebody else while church is going on. Sometimes serving people means you're going to be absent from Bible study. Sometimes serving people means that you're going to have your devotional time interrupted. But when you serve the least of these, you're actually serving the master. Being a diakonos is an expression of what it means to be a doulos. There's one more word for serving in the New Testament, if I'm not just thoroughly boring you so far. Everybody okay? All right, thank you, because i got to plow on. <laughs> All right, one more word. It, it isn't used very often. In fact, only three times in the New Testament. It's the word huperetes. Now, this was a very special kind of servant. The word means under oarsman or under rower. It comes from this. Roman sailing ships would use dozens of galley slaves to row their ships when there wasn't any wind or to maneuver them when they were uh, in battle, to maneuver them into battle positions. This was menial, thankless, backbreaking work. It was invisible work. No one ever saw the work that was going on below the waterline. But it was crucial work. The mission of the warship couldn't be accomplished without a corps of hooperates under oarsmen. Doulos talks about the relationship of the servant to the master. Diakonos talks about the relationship of the servant to the ministry. Hooperates, the under oarsman, speaks about the relationship of the servant to the mission. The truth is, the church can't function without a whole bunch of hooperates. Individual, invisible, unsung heroes who keep the church moving forward. You probably never see them, don't know their names, don't have a clue what they're doing, but you are sitting in chairs that have been disinfected because of under rowers. You're watching online right now because of under rowers. 
There's people manning cameras and pushing buttons and, 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 and giving you different angles. You don't know who they are, but we can't function if they don't function. You're able to hear with quality sound because of under rowers. You're able to see the words of the songs on the screen because of under rowers. You have clean restrooms because of under rowers. Do you ever stop and think about who puts toilet paper in the bathrooms? Probably not. You just use it. But there's somebody that had to put that there. You, you have tables set up for the men's breakfast and the ladies' meetings because of under rowers. Your babies are being cared for with love and compassion by under rowers. Your needs are being carried to the throne of God in prayer by under rowers. We have a list of people that we send your prayer requests to. You don't even know who they are, but they're praying for you. The mission of the church is being funded by people who are under rowers. And before you would dismiss these people as somebody with, you know, they, well, they've got limited skills and abilities, well, pay attention to how this word is used in the New Testament. This is the word that is used in the New Testament to describe King David. In Acts chapter 13, Paul was preaching a sermon on the island of Cyprus. And in that sermon, he was telling the history of Israel. And in verse 36, here's what he says. For David, after he had served the purpose of God, huperetes, in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, was described under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God as an under oarsman. This is the pattern to practice Jesus was demonstrating that night in the upper room when he exchanged his outer garment for a towel of servanthood. When everyone was calling him Master and Lord, he didn't reach for a title, he reached for a towel. Now, the truth of the matter is that practicing servanthood is a lot easier to preach about than it is to actually put into practice. And this is where Jesus comes along in this passage and also gives the power to perform. See, Jesus not only shows what to do, he also tells how it's possible to practice this kind of servanthood. Before Jesus ever picks up the towel, it's right there in verse 3. The Bible says, Jesus, don't miss this please, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, most of us in reading through this, we just read over that as, as, as that's kind of a transition verse to get us moving on into the story. But that verse is packed with how Jesus gives us the ability to do what he's going to demonstrate we're supposed to do. So don't miss it. Here's, what, here's the key. Jesus knowing. Jesus knew. And I want to say to you, this is how you are empowered to embrace the command of servanthood. It has to do with what you know. Well, what do you know? First of all, you need to know who you are. That's identity. Isn't that what it says? Jesus knew who he was. He knew the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew that he had come from God. One of the biggest challenges you face as a follower of Jesus is this issue of identity. When I talk about identity, I'm not talking about the name that was given to you at birth. I'm not talking about what's on your driver's license or your passport or even your paycheck at the end of the week. 
I want to know, do you know who you are in Jesus? If you have repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus, then according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. What things? All things have become new. All things. So why do you still keep going back trying to do the same thing the same way you've always done it? You're a different person. You're not that person anymore. You don't have to wander. You don't have to wallow in all of that anymore. You can step over into a new dimension because all things have become new. I don't think some of you are convinced of that. So let me just move on. According to Galatians 3 and 26, now that you have put your faith in Jesus, you're not just a child of your biological parents, but you're a child of God. According to verse 27 of that chapter, you are clothed with Christ. According to verse 28, there's been a change in your ethnic identity, where he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's been a change in your social identity, where he says there's neither slave nor free man. There's been a change in your gender identity, where he says there's neither male nor female. The primary identifier of your life isn't your skin color. It isn't your gender. It isn't your social standing. It isn't the amount of your assets. The primary identifier is you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus. I tell people all the time about this, and I especially start focusing in and pounding in on it when we start getting close to an election in this country. When you walk through those doors, you do not come in here as Democrat or Republican or Independent. You come in as a follower of Jesus. Leave your politics out there. Let your faith inform your politics instead of your politics informing your worship. I wonder if you really remember who you are today. Let me remind you. Let me remind you that in Genesis 127, you are created in the image of God. In Psalm 8 and 5, you're made a little lower than the angels and you're crowned with glory and majesty. In Psalm 100 verse 3, you are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In Deuteronomy 28 and 13, you're the head and not the tail. In Deuteronomy 32 and 10, you're the apple of his eye. In Ephesians 5 and 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In 1 Peter 2 and 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a person for God's own possession, and you've been placed here so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are. Just remember, God did not save you to be a sensation. He saved you to be a servant. When you embrace the truth of who you are in Jesus, you can walk into the darkest arena with confidence, just holding nothing but a towel of servanthood and know that God is on your side. All right, embracing servanthood comes from the knowledge of who you are, your identity. Then I want you to see it comes from knowing why you are here. That's purpose. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I want to tell you, when you're submitted to Jesus, then his purpose becomes your purpose. His mission becomes your mission. And you don't need to post on social media about how you're serving so everybody can congratulate you in the comment section and hit the like button and the heart emoji button. Just serve with no strings attached. 
That's what the Apostle Paul's talking about when he writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He said, for though I am free from all men, I have made, a, made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. The idea isn't that you're supposed to go into the neighborhood looking down on everyone to save them. Rather, it's to go looking up to them to serve them. C.S. Lewis had it right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Well, verse 3 says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. See, he didn't have to grasp for power. He already had all power. And the reason so many in the church are caught up in political maneuvering is because they've stopped acting like the church and they're trying to bring about the kingdom of God through corporate structures or political policies or social reform. The church has become consumed with power instead of with servanthood. You don't need to grasp for power. All the power you need has been granted to you through Jesus. Now, now imagine with me for a moment. Just imagine this scenario. Imagine that you're standing outside a concert hall. There's this, this concert you've been wanting to see for a long time. And the seating in the hall is first come, first serve. And there's a couple thousand people that are right there with you. They've been, they're waiting for the doors to open so they can rush in and try to get a good seat for the concert. Well, you've probably been camping out there for several hours, maybe since the night before. You're in that crowd. You're uncomfortable. And when the doors open, you push your way forward and you run trying to get a great seat. All right now, imagine the same scenario, concert, thousands of people, but you have a ticket for a reserved seat. Suddenly, it doesn't matter if you're there two hours early or if you show up one minute before the concert begins, you're going to get the same great seat. There's no need to stand in the crowd or push your way forward or run to try and get a seat. You don't have to grasp for a seat. A seat has been granted to you. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He has no need to play the power games that those around him are playing. His power has been granted. The religious and governmental leaders are jockeying for position. They're plotting and conniving and scheming to hold on to what power they have. And they're jealous of anybody who seems to be getting the place they wish they had. And while they're doing that, Jesus is sitting over the, on the sidelines, cool, calm, and collected, knowing he's got a reserved seat. He knows that his power has been granted and no one can take it from him. So he can be a servant and not feel threatened. He can wash feet and know that his power is secure. And when you understand that you have been granted power by Jesus, this will transform your life and enable you to embrace the servanthood that is called for by the master. And can I just tell you this kind of servanthood and this kind of service will change you and it will change those around you. Do you want to change your marriage? Serve your spouse. Don't, some of you don't look at me like that. If Jesus could wash the feet of Judas, come on. Do you want to change your friendships? Serve your friends. Do you want to change your community? Serve your community. You want to change your church? Serve your church. You want to change your relationship with God? Serve people in the church and be the church. Do you want to see your life change? Serve other people because when you serve others, God changes lives starting with you. I need to hasten to finally tell you that you can follow the pattern of Jesus to serve when you know where you're going. And that's destiny. 
See, before reaching for the towel, verse 3 of John 13 says that Jesus knew he was going back to God. And I want to ask you today, do you know where you're going? Do you know your destiny? I'm not asking about hope so or think so or maybe so. Do you have an assurance of your destiny? Jesus was able to leave the splendor of heaven and face the most horrible death imaginable because of his secure knowledge that he knew where he was going. He came from God. He was going back to God. And when you know your destiny, you know where you're going, so what if anybody does this to me? So what? I'm I'm just going to step over into eternity in the presence of the Lord. When you go into this world as a servant, you can face any obstacle imaginable when you have the same certainty that you are ultimately going back to God. So I wonder today, do you have that certainty? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you committed to live for Him, to serve Him by serving others? I want to pray with you. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. See, no one one knows what tomorrow will bring. So don't waste another moment. Don't miss the opportunity to make your life count for something, both for time and for eternity. Bow with me, please. While your heads are bowed, I just want to just say to you very quickly before I pray. You don't need a sign. You don't need a feeling. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to stand. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to repeat a prayer after me. The only thing that is necessary is for you in the quietness of your own heart and mind to just say yes to Jesus. To say to him, I surrender to you, Jesus. I give you my life. Forgive me. I will follow you. In that moment, all things can become new for you. So, Lord, I'm praying now for people that are are agreeing with this prayer with me right now. And the Holy Spirit is tugging at their heart. And they recognize their need for you. I just pray that you will give them the courage to say yes to you. In their own heart to surrender. So that their destiny will be assured for eternity. I ask, O Lord, that you forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us. Transform us from the inside out. And we will follow you in obedience and surrender to your will. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you for 
for confirming your word that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us when we come to you. Thank you, Jesus.